You are listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast, an honest and non-judgmental discussion on faith in God and the doubts we often have, why it's sometimes difficult to trust God, and how we can know with a surety that He loves us. This show centers on strengthening and rebuilding our faith after loss, tragedy, or when coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, here is your host, Gene Curl. Hello, hello, my wonderful listeners, and welcome back to another fabulous episode of Recovering Faith. Before I get into today's topic, I want to talk a little bit about something that I just learned about recently. It's been in the news somewhat. As some of you know, a while back I interviewed Lee and Kathy Baker for an episode of my podcast, and earlier this week, they have sadly decided that they no longer believe in Jesus Christ. They no longer accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they have turned their backs on Jesus completely, and they have aligned themselves with another faith that teaches them that they have to work for their salvation, and that they have to earn their way to heaven. And this is really sad because I thought that they were doing so much great work and bringing people to Christ. And I thought that they were really new Christ, but I guess I was wrong. So I guess at this point, the best that I can do is pray for them. And I would encourage you to pray for them as well. And with that sad news, I will get on with the topic at hand. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about the book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. I've always been a fan of C.S. Lewis, and I've always had a great deal of respect for him and for his work. And I think the only published writings of his that I've yet to read are The Chronicles of Narnia, which is the only piece of his work that most people I know have actually read. I'm not sure why I've never read about Narnia, but perhaps it's because I somehow view it as just a children's story, though I know it is widely believed to be one of the greatest Christian allegories of all times. Uh, I guess I should check out the Chronicles of Narnia sometime. It's on my to-read to list. It's just not hasn't been high priority. One of my uh, all-time favorite books, and one of my top two favorites of the entire works of C.S. Lewis, is The Great Divorce. A few years ago, I loaned my copy of The Great Divorce to a friend and never got it back. And since I can no longer remember who I loaned it to, I'll probably never get it back. A few days ago, having completely given up hope on ever getting my book back, I went to the local bookstore and purchased another copy. Since the city in which I live is not all that large, just over over 50,000, I think it's amazing that we have a bookstore that's not associated with any of the colleges in the area. And it's even more amazing that they had the exact book I was looking for and I didn't have to order it online. 
Saturday was a rather nice day. Uh, the first really nice day that we have had here in southern Missouri since last fall. So when I got home from the funeral of a friend, I sat on a wicker chair in my backyard and I read The Great Divorce, cover to cover, in a few hours. It's amazing how much I can read when I don't have anything to distract me from doing so. And I've read The Great Divorce a couple of times, but, you know, I, I wanted to read it again. The Great Divorce is, in my opinion, not only one of the, uh, not only a great work of literature, but it's one of the best Christian works of all times. If you haven't read the book yet, I highly recommend it. But in case you haven't read it, there'll be spoilers ahead. However, I don't feel that bad if I spoil the ending for anyone, since it has been in print since 1946, and everyone should have had an ample time to read it by now. The Great Divorce is told from the perspective of the narrator, a man who is never named, a character who could be summed up as an everyman, a man who finds himself in a place that is unfamiliar and uncomfortable, though he is unaware of how long he's been there or how he came to be there. The place where the narrator finds himself is vast, is a vast but mostly vacant city, and it seems that it's in a perpetual state of twilight, seemingly only minutes from total darkness, and the rain never stops. Everything in the city is gray, and all of the people he encounters are unhappy and miserable. While the unnamed narrator is wandering through the mostly empty streets of the city, he sees that most buildings and homes are abandoned, and the ones that are occupied are far from the next occupied building. At this point, it is not apparent why so many seemingly good buildings are abandoned. Not knowing what else to do, the narrator keeps walking until he happens upon a bus stop to a destination that is unknown to him. But assuming that it can't be worse than where he is already at, he decides to wait for the bus. Initially, there is a massive line for the bus, and the narrator is not sure if he will even be able to take the bus at all due to the sheer number of people waiting for it. But the other people in line seem to find anything to complain and fight about. And long before the bus ever arrives, there are not nearly enough people remaining to fill even half the bus. As people get discouraged and give up on waiting in line for the bus due to not liking the other people or due to fighting, the narrator continually finds himself closer and closer to the beginning of the line. When the bus arrives, everyone immediately notices that it's not dark and gray like everything in town, but instead is bright, and the bus driver has a pleasant smile on his face. Some of the people waiting in line take offense at the bus driver and make some snide remarks about him, but they're still eager to get on the bus. Despite there being plenty of room on the bus, most of the people fight to be the first ones on board. The narrator, who has no desire to fight his way onto the bus, is the last person to board and he sits by himself in the back. Not too long after the bus leaves the station, a would-be poet 
comes back and insists that the narrator read his poetry, but he says that he can't read it because he doesn't have his glasses. The poet keeps going on and on about how talented he is and how his works should have changed the world, and even thinks that uh, where they are going that he will be recognized for his singular genius. For a minute, the narrator is afraid that he is going to have to hear the young poet recite his poetry, but they are interrupted by another man who wanted to talk about what a difficult life he'd had, and he eventually jumped under a train. The narrator is startled by the confession of jumping under the train, but doesn't have time to think about it because a fight breaks out. After the fight is over, the narrator finds himself seated with a different man, and this man explains to him why the streets are all empty and why the city goes on forever. The city, it is explained, is created by people simply imagining the stores or houses they want, though they offer no real protection from anything, not even the rain. Whenever anyone has any issues with his or her neighbor, they move to a new area of town and either make a new home or else they move into one that was abandoned by someone else. The bus stop, it is explained, is close to where the people arrive when they first are sent there, and the longer a person has been there, the farther they have moved outward. Seemingly, the only thing everyone has in common is that they are not happy. The man, who was telling the narrator about the city, started to talk about why everyone was afraid and why everyone wanted to make sure that they had some shelter before it got dark. But everyone else on the bus got angry and said that it was just rumors and that it would be twilight forever and never get dark and that there was nothing out there to get them. The other passengers even threatened the man to drop the subject or they would beat him up. As the bus flew farther and farther away from the city, the sky got lighter and lighter. And at some point, the narrator realized that everyone, including himself, were translucent and that the light hurt his skin and eyes. It was at this point that the narrator fully realized that he and everyone else on the bus, as well as everyone in the city, were dead. After some time, the bus stopped in a place with green grass, flowers, rivers, trees, a mountain in the distance, and happily singing birds. Everything seemed perfect, especially in contrast to the dark city that he had just left. When the bus stopped, everyone fought to be the first one off, but quickly realized that the light hurt their eyes and their skin and that the grass hurt their feet, as if they were standing on razors or sharp rocks barefoot. <clears throat> Even the largest of the people were unable to so much as move a blade of grass or disturb the dew when they stepped on it. And pulling a blade of grass or picking a flower seemed to be all but impossible. After everyone got off the bus, one of the passengers asked the driver when they had to be back on the bus, and the driver responded by saying that they never had to get back on the bus if, if they didn't want to, and that they could stay there forever if they liked. Not long after everyone got off the bus, People could be seen approaching in the distance, and all of them were solid and looked healthy and happy, and each one seemed intent on making contact with a specific passenger on the bus. 
not knowing where he was at or what he was supposed to be doing, and being a little intimidated by those who were coming to meet the passengers, the narrator started exploring his new environment and listened to the conversation between the other spirits who had been on the bus with him and those whom he called the Solid People. The Solid People came from the mountain, which is the book's representation of heaven, and the reason they came back was to help those who had been in purgatory to have a chance to go to heaven. The majority of the book deals with the conversations the narrator overhears between those who came on the bus and those who were sent back from the mountains to assist them. From these conversations we learn a great deal about theology and a lot of the things people are willing to trade heaven for, all the while thinking that they are being mistreated for not being allowed to take their little piece of hell to heaven with them. As George MacDonald said, there is no escape, there is no heaven with a little hell in it, no plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. The first conversation the narrator hears is between a big man from the bus and a former acquaintance of his from Earth named Lynn. It quickly becomes apparent that the big man had been Lynn's boss and never liked him much, especially after he murdered Jack. We never learn much about Jack other than he was murdered by Lynn and is now in heaven. The big man thought it was extremely unfair that he had been such a good man, by his own estimation, and went to hell when a murderer like Lynn would go to heaven. The big man kept on going on and on about how he had worked for everything he ever got, and he wanted to get what he deserved and demanded to, that he get his rights the same as Lynn did. So Lynn said, Oh no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better, never fear. I like to say that grace is when God gives us things that we don't deserve, and mercy is when he doesn't give us what we rightly deserve. The honest truth is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and are only saved through the grace of God. After a fair amount of arguing and demanding that he, that he get his rights, and never letting Lynn forget that he was a bloody murderer, the big man said that he has never asked for anything and he didn't, uh, that he didn't deserve, and he said he wasn't going to ask anybody for anybody's bleeding charity. Lynn's response is one of the truest things anyone has ever said about Christianity, and it lays out what grace really is. He said, Then do it once. Ask for bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking, and nothing can be bought. Like the big man, a lot of people say they want what they deserve and what they have earned, but I know better. And like Lynn, I know I deserve the just punishment of God, and the only thing my works have earned me is a spot in hell. No, I don't want what I deserve and what I have earned. I want what God is freely giving me. After going on about what a decent chap he was, Lynn corrects the big man and informs him that he was not a decent man and that all of the men who worked under him hated him because he was so hard on them and said, I will 
tell you one thing to begin with. Murdering Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it. But I murdered you in my heart, deliberately, for years. I used to lie awake for hours at night, thinking what I'd do to you if I ever got the chance. That's why I've been sent here to you now, to ask for your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one, and longer if it pleases you. But all the men who worked on you felt the same. You made it hard for us, you know, and you made it hard for your wife too and your children. At the end of a tirade of insults, the big man said to Lan, Tell them I'm not coming, see? I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? The thing about heaven is that we don't go there because we deserve it, because we have earned it, or because it is owed to us. And anyone who believes differently is putting far too much stock in their own abilities and their accomplishments. And they will someday find out they are sorely mistaken. We can only go to heaven by the grace of God. Hell is where we go if we want to be given what we deserve and what we have earned by our, quote, good works. The big man in the story decided that he wanted nothing of the grace of God and did not want heaven if murderers could be forgiven and granted a place there, and he did not want heaven if he could not earn it. What a foolish, foolish decision. But there are people who make the same decision every day. The next conversation that is overheard involves a man who, despite the fact that he was sent to hell, is quite unaware that he was an apostate and was teaching heresy. For the sake of popularity and wealth, the man had taught that the resurrection was a lie, as well as teaching many other anti-biblical doctrines. The crazy thing is that even though he had died and was in hell, the apostate man still believed that heaven and hell were only states of mind and that God was more of an idea than a reality. The apostate's guide said to him, Hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word. And every state of mind, left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeons of its own mind, is, in the end, hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. When the man demanded some guarantee that he would be given something to do useful where he could still debate theology, he was told the truth, a truth that is true for all of us, that he was not needed in heaven at all. No, said the man who was sent to guide him, I can promise you none of these things. No spirit of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents. Only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere for inquiry. For I will bring you to the land not of question, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. In the end, the man decided that he would rather get back on the bus and go back to hell where the other people were in awe of his theological intellect rather than go to heaven without a promise that he would be given a position of prominence and importance. One of the conversations we read about involved a man who had a lizard living on his shoulder, and he had to get rid of the creature 
in order to progress and to make his way to the mountains. The lizard kept whispering in the man's ear and telling him that he could not live without his company and that he would be happier back in the gray city with him as his companion than he would be in heaven without him. The lizard was a representation of sexual sin. The guide told the man that in order to make it to heaven, he had to allow the guide to kill the lizard, and that he could not do it without his consent. Even though it was extraordinarily painful, the man finally allowed the lizard to be put to death so he could go to heaven. Whatever we have to give up for the sake of God, no matter what it is, it's worth it. Paul told us that all of our sin must be put to death so that we can live a new life in Christ. And the lizard living on the man's shoulder was a representation of someone putting their sin to death. As mentioned before, we can't take even the smallest piece of hell into heaven. Another passage, uh, another passenger, I mean, from the bus was met by her brother, and she was outraged because she was not met by her son. The woman was absolutely obsessed with her son and mistook it for love. And when her son died, instead of showing her daughter, her husband, and her other family members the love and affection that they deserved, she obsessed over her lost son and made the rest of the family miserable. The woman had no interest in God for the sake of knowing God and viewed him only as a means to an end, as a means to get her son back. Eventually, the woman proved that she did not truly love her son at all, because she said that she would be happy to have him return to hell with her. When a person truly loves another person, they want them to be with God in heaven, and they want them to be happy, even if it means that they will never see them again. It is the most vile form of selfishness that would consign another to an eternal misery in hell so that they could have them by their side, not love. One of the passengers from the bus thought he would take apples and other things back to the hell so that he could sell them for profit. And he tried, but he was only able to pick up the smallest of apples, and only with great exertion. While struggling with the small apple as of carrying a boulder, trying to take it back to the bus. A loud voice told the spirit to leave it, and it was foolish for trying because nothing from heaven would fit in hell. What I thought was the most foolish thing was not that the man thought that something from heaven would fit in hell, but that he would rather take something from heaven back to hell in an attempt to make a profit than giving up hell and all of his worldly ambitions in order to have heaven. There are a lot of people who are so caught up in their desires to be in charge of others or to have influence that they subscribe to the saying, it is better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. I don't care what it is or what anyone promises you. Nothing in hell, not even the very best thing, if there is such a thing, is better than the worst thing of heaven. One of the common themes that run throughout the book is that all of us has our favorite or our pet sin that we must be willing to abandon in order to gain heaven. Not that we will in any way buy or earn heaven, but that none of hell is compatible with heaven, and by deciding to keep our part of hell, we are, in essence, deciding that whatever it is, that we are choosing is more important to us than heaven and more important to us than God. 
There are many who are quite unwilling to give up their little piece of hell for all of heaven. I think that in order to make that choice, one must not truly know what they are giving up by choosing not to be with God. One woman we encounter in the story had ruthlessly controlled every aspect of her husband's life on earth and made his existence miserable. And when she found out that he made it to heaven and that she did not, she was irate and insisted on being allowed to control him again, arguing that he was incapable of making any sensible decision without her, which was obviously false since he made it to heaven and she found herself in hell. The woman was so set on controlling her husband that she decided she was unwilling to go to heaven if she were not allowed to dominate the poor man and instead opted to get back on the bus and return to hell. There are a lot of people who think it is their right and even their duty to control other people, even when doing so makes the other person completely miserable. Control and domination is not born out of love and has no place in a Christian's life. The narrator of the story is guided by the famous writer George MacDonald, not because he knew him personally, but rather because he respected him and would trust him. MacDonald was one of C.S. Lewis's favorite authors, so that is likely the reason why he was chosen for the story. One of the key things the narrator is told by the guide is, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell chose it. Without that self choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, is opened. A lot of people say that they could not serve a God who would send his children to hell, but the truth is that God doesn't send anyone to hell and gives every single person ample opportunities to accept him. As C.S. Lewis said, all of those who find themselves in hell do so because that is what they chose. The narrator is told that when he wakes up, he has to share what he learned on his journey. The guide said, Ye are only dreaming, and if ye come to tell what ye have seen, make it plain that it was but a dream. See ye make it very plain. Give no fool the pretext to think that ye are claiming knowledge of what no mortal knows. C.S. Lewis never meant the great divorce to be an accurate portrayal of the afterlife, but rather a work of fiction designed to teach true biblical principles and to teach us about the types of things that may prevent us from entering heaven. In the introduction, Lewis was careful to point out that he was not trying to tell us what the afterlife would be like. He said, I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intend it to have, a moral, but the transmortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish is to arise factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. I think it's important to read The Great Divorce, as well as the other works of C.S. Lewis, not because it offers some insight into the afterlife, 
but because it presents important theological issues in a way that is easy to be understood. There are a lot of themes in the book that many of us do without thinking much about, from mistaking obsession or selfishness for love to getting so caught up in being trendy and well thought of that we pervert the gospel until it is no longer recognizable and has none of the saving power, and even mistakenly thinking that we can in any way earn our own salvation. I want to end with this quote from the book. No natural feelings are high or low, holy or unholy, in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the reins. They all go bad when they set up their own and make themselves into false gods. Thanks for listening. Uh, Again, even though this is kind of an overview of The Great Divorce, I hope that you actually go out and read the book. And it is well worth reading. And another one that I will probably cover later, but it's uh, another really good one for C.S. Lewis, is The Screwtape Letters. I hope you got something out of this episode. Thanks for listening. God bless, and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.